We're going to be talking about hell tonight. We're going to be talking about it as good news. What in the world can we mean by that? Now, we talked about last night what, what it means to be alive and then what it means to die, which naturally brings us to the question, if there was a time when we weren't, and then God created us and formed us from the dust of the ground and breathed into us his breath of life, and we became a living soul, we weren't implanted with a living soul, we were not loaned a soul, we are a soul, according to Scripture, and that death is simply the undoing of the creation, so the breath returns to the Lord, the body returns to the dust, and we simply aren't anymore, well, then that automatically, if that is true, that should shake up our understanding about hell. When we look at the things we're going to look at tonight in the book of Revelation and the destruction of the wicked, which is going to happen, what does that actually mean? What is entailed with that? Is there any good news about hell? Tonight we want to demonstrate from the Bible there are at least, and I'm sure we could come up with more, but I want to give you five points of good news about hell that perhaps you haven't seen that is sitting there, right there in God's Word. So we're going to have an interesting study tonight. I pray that it'll be more than information. It'll actually allow the Lord some transformation in your life and you can see his character of love more clearly than ever before. But before we do any study of God's word, what do we do first? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who has a plan both to destroy sin and to save sinners. Lord, with the life that we're living now, let us choose this day whom we will serve. And as we look at your word more closely this evening, help us to understand who you are, what kind of a God you are, and how you're going to go about destroying the wickedness that now plagues the universe. Lord, help us to see your face more clearly tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us go, of course, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, as we look at the very first good news about hell, is that hell lasts forever. Not one amen. Because <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, that does not sound anything like good news. In fact, that's what I thought most of the bad news about hell was, that it lasted forever. That's the part I was the most scared about, you know? So what in the world are you talking about? How in the world is the fact that hell lasts forever good news? Let's study it out from the Bible. Revelation chapter 14, let's start with verse 9. We're going to dive into this just a little bit. We're going to hit this even more clearly tomorrow night. But in the end of the world's history, just prior to Christ's coming, there will be a people on the earth, as we've seen all along, who will be faithful to God, who keep his commandments and have the testimony of Jesus, and they will be entrusted with a message to go out to the whole world, and we call this the three angels' messages. It is found in Revelation chapter 14. And here, the very last warning, the very last message that God has for his people before the close of probation, before his intercessory mediatorial role in heaven is done, before Jesus returns, the last message to go out is found in Revelation chapter 14, starting with verse 9, called the third angel's message. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a what kind of voice? Loud voice. So this is not a quiet, this is not a secret message, it's for the whole world. Crying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. By the way, I hope you sense that there's a bit of a tension there. If you refuse to take the mark, you're under a death decree here on earth. If you accept the mark, you're under a death decree from heaven. <laughs> There's a reason that Christ would later say, don't fear him who can just destroy the body, right? But we'll get into that in a minute. But for right now, notice this. He's warning people, don't take the mark. What's going to happen? he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends how long? Forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. 
And you might be thinking, how in the world does that qualify as good news? That apparently the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, but let's look at another text. Still inside of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. We kind of hit this one in passing and put a, a, a pin in it and said we'd return to it tonight. Revelation chapter 20. This is now talking about, we'll start with verse 7. At the end of the thousand years that occur after Christ's return, the wicked are resurrected and Satan will lead them into battle against God's holy city. Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for what purpose? To battle. And again, these sad, sad words, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So what do they do? Verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Then the devil who, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. You've heard those terms for fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. This is still good news, but it looks bleak right now. Now, here at our worksheet, those verses are not very encouraging if we apply our common understanding of forever being time without end. Typically, when we say forever or forever and ever, we're thinking of something with a starting point, or maybe not even a starting point, but it definitely doesn't ever have an ending point. That's our concept of forever. We're thinking of eternity. We're thinking of infinity. No stopping it ever. In 1858... A gentleman named August Mobius was a mathematician and a theoretical astronomer, and he tried to wrestle with some of these big themes like eternity and stuff, and he came up with a simple little process, right? Here you have a piece of paper, and if you were to put a pin down on it, you'd have a starting point and you'd have an ending point, right? And you could draw a line, and then that's it. Draw a line. Now, even if you were to bend it and loop it, you could draw a line, but it would eventually just come back and meet the same starting point. It would start, and then it'd come to the same end, right? So this is a... But if you twist it, get over here, and just before you attach it, you twist it, and then tape them together, you get something which is now called a Mobius strip. Okay? By the way, this is where our symbol for infinity comes from, Mobius strip. And it's an interesting little thing. I've got one taped together here. But what naturally has occurred, what has a starting point and an ending point, now with this little fun little invention, this little miracle of science, you could put a pin down and follow this, and when you get back to the start, you're not on the same side of the piece of paper anymore. The other one, if you laid it out, you'd be stuck on the same side of the piece of paper. you get from the starting point to the ending point. And even if you put it in a loop, you'd just be looping around the same side of the piece of paper. You can't ever get to the other side. But if you put a twist in there, and then you do the experiment. Your pin would just keep following, and it would go around both sides. Infinitely, just going around and around and around and around. It has no starting point, no ending point. Okay? It's an interesting little device. There's some fun experiments. If you ever want to do this at home, it's really easy. You just cut a strip of paper, twist it, and tape it together. If you cut it in half, it becomes right down the middle. If you cut it in half. It becomes a double twisted, which is not a Mobius strip anymore. And this is all just, just interesting stuff just for your edification. And if in half, it loses the Mobius strip. If you start a third of the way in with your scissor cut, it actually creates another Mobius strip and a non-Mobius strip, two different pieces of paper. Anyway, it's a really cool thing. There's a lot of really deep math in this little twisted piece of paper. The point was that it seems that for us, everything has a starting point and an ending point. 
But it seems that God, when it comes to the destruction of the wicked, doesn't want there to be an ending point. So he does a little miracle. He puts a little twist on reality, folds it back over itself so that you enter this thing called hell that never actually ends. It just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And we could sit here all night and we'd still be going and going. And this is the picture of hell that most people have in their minds. When they think of forever and ever, they mean with no ending. It's just a continuous loop, always going, always going. But friends, is that what the Bible teaches about hell? Is that what the Bible teaches about forever? Well, let's take a look at some of the other uses of forever, the same term in the Bible, and see how the Bible interprets itself. The Bible does interpret itself very clearly on this issue. Let's go to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Let's go to verses 5 and 6. This is one of the laws in ancient Israel. If you had a servant, a worker who worked for you and you treated him well and he liked being in your employ, he could choose once his term of service was up to keep working for you for the rest of his life. And notice what happens here. Chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. But if the servant says plainly, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And then what happens? And he shall serve him how long? Are you telling me that this servant, by having his, this ear punched with an awl, was given the gift of eternal life? No. (laughs) He just has job security, right? Until what happens? Does it say until he dies in the text there? No. But we just know common sense forever means until he's done, right? (laughs) Until he's dead. Forever. Let's look at another example of this. 1 Samuel chapter 1. The same term is forever, used throughout Scripture, and it's never used the way we think of forever. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. This is baby Samuel, was a prayed-for baby, and the Lord gave his mother and father, Elkanah and Hannah, uh, a son named Samuel, and to keep her vow to the Lord, she had promised, Lord, if you give me this baby, I'll give it back to you. Just let me raise him, right? And look what happens in verse 22. But Hannah did not go up to the feast that time with her husband, with her husband, saying, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there how long? Now, does that mean for the rest of all eternity without end? No, it simply means for the rest of his life, till his life is over. Continuously without end until it's finished. Perhaps the best example of the biblical understanding of forever is seen in the life and experience of King David. Let me show you some of these. Still in 1 Samuel, go to the right now, chapter 28. 1 Samuel, chapter 28, verse 3. Daniel here is really in an interesting scenario. If you want to study, I mean, David... David is in a very tough spot, and uh, we can, we can um, if you had time, just study out the history of David, where he was at this point in his life. But look what we read about in verse 3. Um, I'm sorry, not verse 3. Verse 2, I'm sorry, it's a typo. Verse 3 is great, but not what we need tonight. <laughs> so David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. That means permanently, until it's over, till there's nothing left, right? Watch this. David speaks of himself, Psalm 89. Psalm 89 and verse 1. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord, how long? Forever. But if you recall, we saw last night from the same book of Psalms that the dead do not praise the Lord. But David just said, I'm going to sing the praise of the Lord forever. What does he mean? Until I'm dead. 
That's when my song will cease, when my life has ended. But I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 145, still right there in the book of Psalms. Just keep going to the right. Psalm 145, verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God and my King. I will bless your name, how long? Forever and ever. The same term that for torment will last forever and ever. David says, I'm going to sing your praises forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Psalm 119. Back up just a few there. Psalm 119. David uses this terminology for himself all the time. Psalm 119, verse 44. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. You think, oh, the book of Revelation talks about forever and ever all the time. No, no, the rest of the Bible talks about forever and ever a whole lot. But never once does it mean time without end. Now, how can we know that definitively? Well, watch what Acts chapter 2, oh, I'm sorry, Acts, uh, 1 Kings, let's go to 1 Kings before we go to the New Testament. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10. What eventually happened to David? He died. It's recorded in Scripture, the death of David. In my Bible, it has a heading called The Death of David. So you know where you are. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10. By the way, look at how they talk about his death. So David did what? Rested. He slept. Right? Rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. I would certainly hope that he's dead because they buried him. Yes? This is clearly a reference to his life ended, his body is ready to go back to the ground, and so they bury him in the ground. He rested with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David. Now we skip forward to the New Testament, still talking about David. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, David's death makes it into Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. He's speaking to those who had killed their own Messiah just 40 days earlier. 50 days earlier, I'm sorry. And he's making a case from Scripture that Jesus was their Messiah and they just killed him. Right? So he's going back to some Old Testament and he brings up King David in his argument. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 29. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Now, in what condition is he? He is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. He's like, if you want to double check my facts, you can go on a little fact-finding tour. You can go to his grave. And lo and behold, if you were to open it up, you would find dust of the earth. He is dead he is buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, look at verse 34. For David did not do what? Ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He was talking about the prophecies that pointed to Christ. Do not apply to David. David is dead, buried, and in the tomb, and he did not go to heaven. So when David talked about, I'm going to sing the praises of the Lord forever and ever. I'm going to praise your name forever and ever. I'm going to extol your glory. I'm going to, be, I'm going to, I'm going to tell generations to come about you. Does he mean that he's going to be alive for generations to come and continue to sing those praises? No. He simply means I'm going to do it forever for the rest of my days until I'm dead. And then when I'm dead, I'm done. That's what we learned last night, that when you're dead, you're done. Yet David employed the rest of his life until that end point as forever. The same way that Samuel was given to the Lord, forever. The same way that the servant would serve his master, forever. 
It all means for the rest of my days until my days are done and I am dead. I'll make this patently clear. So when we see that hell lasts forever, does it mean for infinity without end? Or does it mean until it is ended? Biblically, the precedent is set forever or forever and ever always means completion until it's done. That's it. And when we apply the Bible's understanding of forever to the text about the destruction of the wicked, ah, that's good news, amen? That there will be a time when it is actually ended. It is not an infinite ongoing, never-ending process. It's simply forever until the job is done. Just like David's life, forever until I'm dead, and then I'm done. The first good news about hell is that biblically it lasts forever, but not according to what we understand forever to be. Good news number two. May not seem like good news, but let's read it for what it is. What's it say there? Hell does what? Kills. Now, we mentioned this the other night. In Daniel chapter 3, if you remember the three Hebrew worthies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the king Nebuchadnezzar set up that image of gold and everyone was supposed to bow down and worship the image, and if they refused, there was a furnace, right? And they would be thrown into the furnace if they didn't bow down and worship. And in the king's rage, he said, make that furnace seven times hotter. And I made the remark that, look, if I'm going to be thrown in a fire, if I'm going to be killed in a fire, I don't want it on low heat, you know? You better make that thing huge because I want it to get, the, if it's going to do a job, I'd rather it get it done all the way instead of just charbroiled, right? So he says seven times hundred, and of course the Lord intervenes, steps in the fire with him, and there's four men, and the fourth one looks like the Son of God. The lesson there being, even if you're threatened with pain of death, stick with Jesus and he'll see you through. But in this instance, if the fire that we're talking about, somehow we've gotten this picture that the fire that God uses to destroy the wicked doesn't actually destroy the wicked. It just really, really hurts. Correct? The picture of hell that people paint is somehow it's bad enough to hurt, but not quite bad enough to actually do the job, to actually kill. If I'm going to be thrown in a fire, if I know I'm going to be dying, I want to actually die. Does that make sense? Let's look at this good news number two. Hell kills. Malachi, chapter 4. Last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. If you go to the book of Matthew, then just back up one book. Malachi, chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. And listen to the description of the destruction of the wicked that is recorded in Scripture here. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a what? Like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be what? Stubble. And the day which is coming shall do what to them? Burn them up says the Lord of hosts, to what extent? That will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, every picture I almost guarantee that you have of hell is that you never actually burn up. It's like the miraculous a burning bush in the wilderness, you know, that it was on fire but didn't burn up. But that somehow the Lord would miraculously sustain your life just to keep you alive so that you'll hurt a long time. But that's not the picture of hellfire that the Bible paints. According to Scripture, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. It will leave them neither root nor branch. Malachi chapter 4. Now notice it goes on to, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Right? You're not going to face this destruction. But look what happens. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be what? 
ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. Now that's the thing about ashes and smoke. You always hear this phrase, where there's smoke, there's fire. But you know, according to the law of physics, that's not true. Where there's smoke, there was fire. You understand that, right? The smoke's not actually in the fire. The smoke is, once the fire's out, and it, same thing with ashes. Ashes are the result of a fire that has completed its work. Do you see that? And apparently, once this work is done, what's left is stubble, ashes, neither root nor branch. The picture is of wood burning, right? And when the job is done, it's going to be all burnt up. It's not like the burning bush that just keeps on going, miraculously sustaining. The purpose is to destroy, not to just hurt. Let's keep looking at this. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. We study the good news about hell, and number two is that he, hell actually kills. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. Speaking of Satan's fall, we've looked at this passage several times, but we look at it again tonight in this study. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 18. You defiled your sanctuary by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you, I turned you to what? Ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror, and you shall be what? No more. And that no more will continue forever. Right? That condition will just continue. It's very simple. Turn to ashes, and you will be no more. And this is about Satan himself. Psalm 37, David comes back to this theme, this good news about hell. Psalm 37, verse 10, for yet a little while and the wicked shall be, what? No more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Skip down to verse 20. But the wicked shall what? Perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall what? Vanish. Into smoke they will vanish away. Do you see the imagery that's used with the fire that destroys the wicked? It does a complete job. It burns them up, root or natural. What's left is ashes and smoke, and it vanishes away. And you'll look for the wicked. Where are they? Well, they just simply aren't. Because they're dead. They're not being sustained alive just to be tortured and be watched for eternity by the... Friends, this picture that has been developed is wrong. And it degrades the character of God. According to Scripture, the destruction of the wicked is exactly that. The destruction of the wicked. Jesus himself. Look at Matthew chapter 10. And you remember our study on first death and second death? Unless Jesus comes again in our lifetime, all of us will face first death, right, which is just temporary, the body. But Christ can raise you up and give you new life again, right? But second death destroys not just the physical body, but your soul itself, all of you. You're just gone forevermore, right? Jesus refers to this. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends, what's the purpose of hell according to Jesus himself? To destroy the body and soul. Permanent ending, no more to ever be again. Right there in your study guide, fill in the blank. The purpose of hell is not merely to punish, but to completely destroy. Good news number two about hell is that hell actually kills. The picture that most people have in their minds is that hell doesn't actually kill. Hell is a place where you stay alive. In fact, 
you take, again, the most famous passage in all the Scripture, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. The wage of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. You notice the two choices are life or death. But somehow, we've gotten a picture that our two choices are life or life. I saw a bumper sticker one time. Literally said this. I think they were trying to be cute, but kind of blew my mind a little bit. It said, eternity, smoking or non-smoking? But tell me, that's built on a picture of God that's going to keep everybody alive, whether they want it or not, and some of them are going to have happiness and bliss and pleasure in His presence, and others He's going to keep alive just to hurt. For millions of years. Friends, that does not correspond with the character of God who is long-suffering, merciful, and gracious, and forgiving. Yes, He will not forgive iniquity. He will deal justly, but He's not a tyrannical maniac who keeps people alive just because He likes to hurt them. Am I making sense tonight? Good news, hell number, good news number two about hell is that it actually gets the job done. God's goal is not to have his dissenters kept alive and tortured throughout eternity? They've voluntarily separated themselves from the source of life and he honors their choice. They will just simply be no more. The fires of hell actually get the job done. Hell kills. It's an important distinction and it's good news. Let's go to number three. Hell is an event, not a place. Hell is an event, not a place. Job chapter 21. Let's go back there. Just before the book of Psalms, we go to the book of Job. Chapter 21. What does it tell us about the wicked and their destruction? Job chapter 21 and verse 30. When people die, do they immediately go to a place called hell? No. Look what happens. Job chapter 21, and we're looking at verse 30. For the wicked are what? Reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. So when the wicked go down into their graves, are they seeping down into the depths of the core of the flaming earth and the spinning molten lava and where Satan is in charge? And No. Just like everybody else who dies, they're just done. And the Lord will resurrect them to either reward or destruction on that particular day. You know, we saw that the other night about the millennium, the thousand years, and the great chain that Satan is bound with. And repeatedly, the Bible refers to in Second Peter, in the book of Jude, and in different places, how the wicked angels are reserved for the great day of judgment. And apparently the wicked people who follow in that train are reserved for the day of judgment. Judgment happens at the end of time, and until that time, they're just simply dead. According to the book of Job, again, chapter 21 and verse 30, for the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. It's a calendar. It's not a place. It's an event. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll see the same line of reasoning. Go through Old Testament, New Testament, consistently right through Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. says, but the heavens and the earth which are now, what's that word? Preserved, by the same word, are reserved for what? Fire, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Again, New Testament author, the exact same train of thought. That the wicked, and all that the wickedness, everything that's going to be reserved, 
is on hold, is reserved, is being preserved for this day of judgment, when the fire is going to come then. Hell is an event, not a place. Okay? Hell is an event, not a place. Keep going to the right. Jude, Jude 6. Again, Jude is right before Revelation. It's so small, it doesn't have chapters, so we just list off the verses. Jude 6 and 7. Now carefully watch this. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Do you notice how repeatedly the destruction of the wicked and the judgment of sinners and evil angels themselves, all the Bible writers don't write as though it's happening now. They write that there's a day coming when it will occur, that it is an event, it's not a place. In fact, you remember the other night we mentioned this one as well. Jesus was walking along and he ran into those two demon-possessed men in the caves and they had no problem saying who Jesus was. They say, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? And then they ask this interesting question. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They understand there's a time of judgment coming and it's a time. It's not a place. Hell is an event not a place. In fact, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. 2 Peter chapter 2, still right there at the end of the New Testament, chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice what it writes about here. Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't even finish. Ah, I'm sorry about that. We need to go back to Jude. My apologies. We only read one verse. I got excited about it and left. There's more good news, right? Jude 6 and 7. Now, we're going to be going to 2 Peter, so if you got there, just leave your finger there, okay? But Jude again, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then it adds this in verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as a what? An example, suffering the vengeance of what? What kind of fire did the Lord burn them with? Let me ask you a question. If you were to go over to the land where Sodom and Gomorrah exist, yes, existed, right, because they're gone now, would you see fire? Nope. But interestingly enough, you know what you do find? Ashes. In fact, if you go over there, it's really a fascinating thing. I haven't been, but I've known people who have. You can go over there, and in that valley floor, that area, you'll find an interesting deposits that you don't really find in other places on the earth. You'll find little yellow sulfur balls. Right? If you hold them up to a match, they still burn. Right? And the Lord destroyed them by raining fire and brimstone, which is sulfur, down on them. And apparently they exist their experience was supposed to be an example of what eternal fire would do. And it burned them up completely until it was all done, and then it's done. So they're an example to us of what eternal fire is like. And the fire's not still going because the job got done. Now, Second Peter Chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice the harmony of the Bible writers on this particular issue. Now, let's just start with verse 4. <laughs> For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, by the way, the word hell there is a bad translation, but okay, the grave, the pit, the, you know, their doom, right? and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly, on the world of the ungodly, and, still talking about God here, 
turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Ashes. But apparently they are an example of what happens when you go through eternal fire. If you're wicked and suffer the vengeance of eternal fire, what's left on the other side? Ashes. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them a what? An example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. I mean, if language has any value at all, plain reading, twice now we've seen that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of how God destroys with fire. And sure enough, it gets the job done. It's reserved for a particular day, this day of judgment, and the fire comes and it gets the job complete. That's what eternal fire is all about, according to the Bible. Now, Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Oh, we already saw that one. You skipped ahead. Fine. We'll read it again. Just to make sure it's still in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 8. Recall this one? Verse 28. When he had gone to the other side to the country of the Gergenses, there he met two demon-possessed coming out of the tomb, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the what? He didn't say, have you come here in the wrong place as though hell was presently burning and they just somehow escaped and he was going to put them back in their place. No, 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 no. Hell isn't a place. It's an event. It's a point in time. It's an assumed calendar appointment. It's it's an arrangement that God has made, reserved them for that day. They understand it. I don't think they're looking forward to it, but they certainly know the truth about it. So good news number three, hell is an event, not a place. Now it's going to get a little bit weirder, but I want you to see it's right here in the Bible. Good news number four, only the righteous will live with eternal fire. Now we just saw that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was an example for the ungodly of what their experience will be like when they meet up with eternal fire. It destroys them, both root and branch, till they're just ashes. They're done. So if that's what the wicked experiences that go through the fire, what happens to the righteous if they go through the fire? You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The righteous don't go through the fire, do they? Oh, good. We get to learn something. That's really fun. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. You see, we have this picture in our mind that that there is God and he sends down fire and so there's the wicked and there's the fire over there and there's God and the righteous over here not being burned. Which, of course, we won't be burned, but they're the only ones experiencing the fire. But look what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. What does it tell us about God himself? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. It says here, For our God is a what? Consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Go back to Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter, this one's not in the worksheet, this is bonus material. I won't charge you for it, but you're welcome. Exodus chapter 33, you remember the the request of Moses? He had been listening to the word of God, he'd been communing with God, he'd been leading God's people in the name of God, and now he wanted to get close to God. And he asked this request, Exodus chapter 33 We're in verse 18. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. And he said, please show me your glory. Now what does the Lord respond? Verse 19. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 20, but you cannot see my what? Face. For no man shall see me and what? Live. Sometimes when God says no, it's what's in our best interest. <laughs> it's like, uh, you, you don't know what you're asking for. I'll get you, let you get as close as you can. But if I let you see all of me just completely unveiled, if you saw my raw glory, my face itself, what would happen to you? You'd die. So what does he do? This is really interesting. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So, that sh- so it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I'll let you get as close as possible, but you can't see my face and live. Now let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 22. Here's a key to Revelation. The righteous will see the face of God. Revelation chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. We're going to put what we just read in Exodus 33 and what we learned in Hebrews chapter 12 about God being a consuming fire. And look how both of those ideas are put here in Revelation 22, starting with verse 4. Speaking of the redeemed, it says... They shall see what? What's the implication, by the way? They shall see his face and live and not die. That would be a really cruel trick. Welcome to heaven, everyone. And they all fall dead. No. You will see my face. They shall see my face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. The seal of the living God, the character of God is in them. And then it writes in verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. Apparently, they don't need a sunshine or a lamp whenever God is around because our God is a consuming fire. All of that brings us to Exodus, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. I want you to read carefully so you see that it's right there in the Bible that you're holding. Isaiah 33, 14 and 15. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the what? Devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And you think, "Uh uh-oh, they're talking about the wicked, going to go to hell, right? But look at the answer. He who walks how? Righteously. And speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes. He who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. The question is asked, who can dwell with eternal burnings? And the answer is, the righteous. Friends, I want you to grasp this idea. Is it possible that when the Lord reveals his glory and that our God is a consuming fire, to some people, that will be their destruction. But to other people, that will be their salvation. The same event has two different reactions. Think about that. So good news number four, only the righteous will live with eternal fire. 
The wicked will go into eternal fire, but it will destroy them. The righteous will go into the presence of God himself, who is a consuming fire, and bread will be given them, their water will be sure, they will walk uprightly, they shall see my face, and my name shall be in their forehead. It's a fascinating concept. And perhaps the best news of all, not just perhaps, the singular best news of all is number five. Hell isn't meant for you. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about his own return. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about his own return. And I want to walk you through this because I want to highlight something we just saw. Not only will the righteous see the face of God, but his name, his glory, his character will be on their foreheads. It will be theirs, right? They will have become Christ-like. And thus they can dwell with God. Right? You recall Jesus said it the most sublimely in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But if God offered to show up, would that be good news or not? He says, I'm going to reveal to you my face. You're like, now wait a minute. Hmm. You're the same God who said, no man should see my face and live. <laughs> but apparently the righteous do see your face. Friends, what we are supposed to do on this earth is develop a fireproof character that can walk with God and not be destroyed by God. Do you see what I'm saying? Watch this now. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Again, there's only going to be two classes at the end, those who are faithful to God and those who are unfaithful to God, those who have developed the character of Christ and those who have developed the character of Satan. I mean, it's a very clear distinction. You recall in Matthew chapter 13, there's the wheat and the tares. Some are going to the barn and some are going to the burn. And here Christ returns in his own language describing it. Verse 31 again, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he will set the sheep on his left, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. I'm a left-handed person, and it's always been a little bit troubling that all the bad people are on the left. But anyway. Maybe that new glorified body, he'll correct my deficiency. Who knows? Anyway, verse 34. Notice what he says here. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for whom? For you. From when? From the foundation of the world. It has been God's plan from the very foundation of the world that we would live with him in his kingdom. Amen? God has not had a plan that, oh, this one's going to go to hell and I'm going to watch him burn forever. Please, he says, no, those who come into the kingdom, I said, come into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This has been my intent, my aim, my objective ever since I brought you into existence from the very foundation of the world. By the way, he explains why. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Notice that they are like Jesus. They have that selflessness that the law of God just simply is a transcript of his character. They are like their Savior. And he says, come in, you would fit here. You belong here. I built you for here. By the way, look at how great this is. And look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brother, and you did it to me. I love the fact they didn't even know they were doing it. Like, when did we ever see you? We just saw people. And we just take care of people because that's what we do. And God's like, that's my point. You fit in. Come on. Now look at this now. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into what? The everlasting fire. Now check this out. Prepared for whom? Nowhere does it say that hell was meant for you. Specifically, hell's purpose is to destroy Satan and sin. But sinners have a way out in Jesus Christ. He says, the kingdom's been prepared for you. Hellfire is for the destruction of Satan and his angels. There's no need you had to go. So what makes the difference? Watch this. So simple. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And notice verse 44. Then they also will answer. And notice that their answer is word for word identical to the righteous answer. Lord, when did we see you? You, But you understand the implication. They're like, Lord, when did we see you? Sick or thirsty or in prison or whatever? It's like, we didn't see you. We just saw people. And who cares? (laughs) The implication is, Lord, if we'd have known it was you... Sure, we'd have done prison ministry. We would have, we'd have opened up a community service. We would have done anything. We'd have fed the homeless. We'd have, we'd have taken you into our own house. We'd have clothed you with our own clothes. We would have done anything for you. But it wasn't you. right? Because you can give us stuff. <laughs> you hold the keys of Oh, you could. But it wasn't you. We just saw regular old people. And he's like, that's my point. You didn't know it was me. And you didn't do it. You would not fit in to a heaven that's built on selflessness. You don't have the name of God on your forehead. You couldn't see my face and live. Mm. Fill in the blank with me, please. Number five, hell isn't meant for you. Destruction is hell in hell is for Satan and his angels. Heaven is for you. Hell is for the devil and his angels. Heaven is for you. And just to underscore this, let's look at our last couple of texts here. Ezekiel chapter 33. It is my prayer that from this time forward, whatever vestiges of an image that you might have in your head of a vindictive, mean-spirited, maniacal God will forever be gone. Ezekiel chapter 33 Look at verse 11. And listen to the pathos in the voice of God. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the what? Death of the wicked. Do you think God's looking forward to destroying his own creation? Do you think he would set up a structure that would keep them alive by a miracle? He would continue to breathe into them life just so they could hurt. 
throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, well beyond whatever payment they might repay for crimes in this life, well beyond that, for eons more, for millennia to go, they still get to hurt. Friends, it doesn't harmonize with the character of God who built heaven for you. And he says plainly right here, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked do what? Turn from his way and what? Live. By the way, the implication is if you don't turn your way and you're wicked, you will die. There it is again. It's either death or life. And he says, I'm setting before you death and life. Choose life. There's no reason you should ever die. Hell wasn't built for you. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Listen again. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Why should you die? And finally, 2 Peter. Chapter 3. Chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Verse 9. We'll start there. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And of course, he's talking about the promise of his coming. It was already mentioned earlier in the chapter there. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And of course, when someone is slow to do something, there's only, from our perspective, there's only a few reasons why they would ever not do something on time. Like if you set a date with someone, they don't come, apparently it doesn't matter to them. If you have a work, either they forgot about it, or they're just lazy, or they're forgetful, or they just don't care. Is that why the Lord has not returned? No, according to Scripture, look at this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that, notice it doesn't say not willing that many should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. By the way, the Old Testament God was the one saying, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die when you can live? The New Testament God. Because it's the same God. From Genesis to Revelation, the character of God is revealed that He loves us, that He created us to be in His image, to be with Him for eternity. And He wants to separate us from sin so we don't have to die. It's not a picture of a vindictive God, a maniacal God. It's a God of love. And a God who loves you who built you especially in his image and wants to restore you whatever junk you've gone through, he says, turn from your wicked ways, for why should you die? Friends, I want you to see tonight that hell is good news on several levels. Number one, it lasts forever, and that means according to Scripture forever, which is until the job is done and then it's done. Number two, hell actually gets the job done, hell kills. He's not going to purposely leave people alive and just extend their lives throughout eternity just to hurt them. When God says he's going to destroy, you better believe it's going to get done. Number three, hell is an event and not a place. It's not a burning pit in the middle of the earth right now where people are down there and there's friends. Both the righteous and the wicked, when they die, they're simply asleep in the graves until Christ wakes them up to either get the reward or destruction. Number four, only the righteous will live with eternal fire. And number five, hell isn't meant for you. Now, I know this might be a new concept to some of you, but I hope it's a new and improved concept, right? Right? You ever notice that every product line, nothing's ever new. It's always new and improved. (laughs) If there's been some new truth, some new light that's come into your light, I hope it's been a blessing. I hope that you see that the Bible truth about hell compared to what you might have thought is good news. That God loves you and that even if you choose to rebel against him, he's not going to be vindictive and maniacal and keep you alive and suspended animation and make you suffer throughout... Simply respect your decision. You can join what was never intended for you, but the devil and his angels and the destruction of the fire, and you can be ashes. But he said, why die when you can live? 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's message been clear? Has it made sense? Praise God. I hope that not only have you seen good news about hell, but you've seen good news about God, that he truly is a God of love. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who is good, who has a plan, yes, and it will be a difficult thing. The Bible calls it your strange act when you destroy the wicked, but that your destruction is just that, it's destruction. And at the end, it will be all done. But Lord, we don't even have to face that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And I know throughout these meetings, Lord, there have been many who have been thinking of new ideas from your word or seeing connections that had not previously been there. And Lord, there are some who are wrestling. Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to soothe their mind, to give them peace, and let them see that you truly are a God of love. And that the book of Revelation is truly a revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to learn to love him now so that we can be fit for that kingdom, so that when you come, we can dwell with the eternal burnings. We can be face to face with our Savior and live with him forevermore. And Lord, it is my prayer that, yes, Jesus comes, and he comes soon and very soon, but beyond that, Lord, that not one here will be missing. That in, Lord, keep us faithful. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.